You are now listening to What the Hell, a podcast dedicated to helping you navigate your way to better health. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 92 of What the Health. I'm your host, Lena Lahire, and it's been a minute, hasn't it? It's been a minute since I was last on here, and a lot has changed. <laughs> like, a lot has changed. April, it's May now, but April was a season of change. So if you've listened to my recent podcasts, my previous podcasts, you would know I didn't get into grad school. And that changed. <laughs> so that was that was the biggest change. Uh, I was in my last day of classes as an undergraduate. I'm officially done. I walked the stage for my convocation in three weeks' time, which is very exciting. It's been a long four years, like, but almost five years, because I had to upgrade my high school math before going back. Then I did some open studies for my intro psych courses and it's been a long road and it's finally done. But I had mentally prepared myself for not getting into grad school. When I found out I didn't, I had a week where I cried a lot and had this, you know, a lot of reflection and, you know, existential crisis and figuring things out but I got to a point where I was like okay I'm settled I got some paid research work I can still have my hands in research um, continue to publish so I was kind of like settled and I was in my last day of classes (laughs) doing this option course called introduction to dinosaurs yes that's a thing and you have to do all these options when you do a degree and anyone who has a degree knows how painful it is to sit through these optional courses that is you know a side note so I'm in my last day and it's an online course and I get this email and mind you I have not received my rejection letter yet and so I'm kind of like bracing for impact and every time I get another email about grad school or whatever I like it's another punch to the heart and uh, I get this email saying Hi, Lena, you haven't specified what specialization you wanted to go in for grad school. I take it it's industrial organizational psychology, but you never put that. And I just thought, oh my goodness, this is just painful. Like, I know I've not gotten in. This is painful. So I just ignored the email. I'm like, I'm sitting in class. It's fine. Whatever. I'll get back to it. And then two minutes later, I receive another email saying, congratulations, you've been accepted into the Master of Science Graduate Studies um, with a specialization in industrial organizational psychology. And I will tell you, I don't remember anything from that dinosaur class. Uh, We talked about what happened with the extinction of dinosaurs that is yet to be Uh, found out by me because obviously I know you know like a meteor whatever I actually don't know because I didn't I didn't listen to a thing afterwards my mind was just like what is happening is this real I contacted my supervisor saying like I just 
got an email saying I'm accepted into grad school. Is this real? So I met with him. There's two of us actually that applied and he had to tell us both no. And what happens in grad school is supervisors are either given a student or they're not given a student. And he was not given a student. So neither of us could get in. But when you're applying to grad school, what most people do when, especially if they're not mature students is they, they apply to multiple schools. So like I had people in my class, uh, applying to like six different schools. Well, they're they're not able to attend six different schools, so they're going to have to reject some of them. And this is what happened is two of the offer letters that went out from other supervisors in the IO program, those offers got rejected. And so my supervisor was next in line to get not one, but two grad students. So we both got in and it was like three weeks of things happening like again my mind is also like in a very positive state and when when something positive happens we end up seeing the positive which we're gonna we're gonna talk about today we're gonna talk about the placebo effect and the nocebo effect which I'm really excited about um so it's it's a good little segue but then I had my birthday and Kevin completely spoiled me it was like a week of shopping indulgence and buying you know clothes that are more professional as I'd been living in Lululemon for the last four and a half years and he got me a really beautiful handbag as a grad gift one that I had you know been pining over for two years and yeah I went out with friends and it was just like I just felt so celebrated and what was really interesting was um you know, after a little bit, I started to get this kind of like guilty feeling of being happy. And I couldn't figure out why, like I I had been so happy for myself and like proud of what I've done. And I've graduated, I've done my honors, I did my thesis, like everything was so good for the first time in probably like four years things were good. Um, I'd like figured out this whole chronic pain thing with MCAS. Um, I'm not sure if I explained that to you guys. Uh, anyways, we figured out kind of what's going on when I get these like symptoms uh, and this big trigger, like the systemic trigger. And it's um, mast cell activation syndrome. So it's like all these things started to like come into play and I finally felt like I was coming out of this deep valley but there was a part of me that felt really guilty and unworthy of the celebration and I have been working with my therapist doing internal family systems therapy which I will also get into today and you know I actually let's get into it right now we're going to get into it right now. So it it will all make sense once uh once I start describing this. So internal family systems therapy, also known as IFS. So this is a therapy that was developed by someone called Richard Schwartz in the 1980s, and he was a family therapist who had been working with clients 
for many, many years. And he noticed that some individuals had an internal dialogue between these different parts of themselves. And this led him to develop IFS as a way to understand and work with these internal dynamics. And he found IFS provided a useful framework for understanding the complex interplay between different aspects of the psyche. So overall, he developed IFS as a way to help people heal and grow by working with these different parts of themselves and to promote a greater self-awareness and self-compassion. According to IFS, everyone has this core self, which is the true, authentic, and compassionate version, the center of the psyche. However, this core self can become overshadowed or obscured by other parts, such as protective parts that try to shield us from pain or trauma, or the critical parts that judge and criticize us. These parts can be thought of as different aspects of our personality, each with its own thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. The different parts are classified into three main categories. There's managers, exiles, and firefighters. And I will caveat this by saying I am not an IFS therapist. However, I have been doing IFS for the last nine months, six to nine months. Uh, So I'm just giving you a synopsis of what it is. But if it's something that you want to explore more, I would find an IFS trained therapist and it's extremely important that you find someone who is trained in this modality of therapy because working with these parts can um, be quite challenging and it is directed more for those who have experienced trauma. So that's just a side note. So managers are parts that are responsible for protecting us from perceived threats or potential harm. And they're often in charge of controlling our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors and may exhibit characteristics such as anxiety, uh, perfectionism, or compulsivity. Examples of manager parts might include what many call the inner critic or the worrier. Firefighters are parts that are activated when an exile part is triggered, and we'll get to what an exile is, in order to distract or numb us from the pain of experiencing or interacting with an exile. Firefighter parts often take the form of impulsive or addictive behaviors such as substance abuse, binge eating, or things like compulsive shopping or gambling. Examples of firefighter parts might include the inner addict or the inner rebel. And exiles are the parts that are often associated with pain, trauma, or other difficult experiences. And they represent aspects of ourselves that we have tried to hide or suppress in order to avoid feeling overwhelmed or vulnerable. And examples of exile parts might include the abandoned child or the shamed self. And what's important to note is that any of these categories, they can 
change. They're, they're not stable, right? They're not fixed. They're not rigid. And each person's parts may differ in form and function. So the goal of IFS therapy is to help the individuals identify and work with their parts in a way that promotes greater self-awareness, self-compassion, and healing. And what happens with these parts is they often get frozen in time. This is how um, Dr. Schwartz describes it. They get frozen in time during the time when they had to take on this role. So the other kind of part to IFS is that these roles, say it's this inner critic, it had to take on that role. It became burdened with that role due to something that happened to you. And it's often when you're in childhood or, you know, in your younger years. And the goal is when you understand these parts, they can become unburdened because we start to merge ourselves with them and we don't really know where we end and where they begin, but they can become unburdened and transform into the role that they were intended to be in. And when you ask these parts, how old you think, how old they think you are, often they will say something in the single digits or, you know, 10, 11, 12, something like that. So that's kind of a synopsis of internal family systems therapy or theory. And it has been one of the biggest things that has moved the needle for me in my mental health and in my physical health, especially with chronic pain, because we know that those who experience trauma in childhood have a greater propensity to experience chronic pain. And unfortunately, this is my story and this is many people's stories. And IFS can be such a powerful tool to uncover these parts and the, and the trauma and to move through it. Okay, so back to the story. So I'm really happy. Everything's going well. And all of a sudden I feel guilty. And because I've been doing IFS for quite a while now, I think, ooh, what's that guilty part there? Everything's parts to me now. Like there's a guilty part there or, you know, a part that doesn't want me to feel happy. And I'm trying to interact with these parts. And, you know, I can do this to a certain extent on my own, but sometimes I can't access these parts. There's other parts that won't let me access because what we're really trying to access is an exile, and there's all these other parts that come in, the managers and the firefighters. They don't want us to experience these exiles because often these exiles, uh, they weren't safe to feel, right? So if one of those exiles is anger and that's not safe to feel as you're growing up, you're going to have other parts that come in and suppress that. And every now and then that exile is going to get out of suppression and like, for me, anger was one of them, which is why I use that as an example. And I will, I would, you know, go into an outrage and it would only last like these, these outbursts of rage 
is what I would call them, they would only last, you know, minutes, sometimes even seconds. And all of a sudden, uh, I could feel, you know, something just suppressing it. And this happened for years and years and years. And it, and it actually like was one of the reasons I sought out therapy after I got married, because then Kevin experienced them. And I didn't really know what was going on. Okay, that's a side note. Again, these exiles are, they weren't safe to feel, but they still come out sometimes. And when they do come out, you have these other manager and firefighter parts that come to suppress them. So I had this like part that didn't want me to feel happy. And when I was trying to access it, I just got nothing. And it wasn't, it was more than an inner critic. You know, when you have, you just have that, that part of you that criticizes you. It wasn't that. It was deeper than that. It was like, I, I could only describe it as fear. Like there was this fear of being happy. And when I went into a therapy session, it like, I mean, it was in the last five minutes of an hour long session where we finally figured out the connection between fear and enjoyment. And I'm not going to get into it because uh, it's actually quite personal. But it's amazing what happens when we figure out these parts and when, you know, something comes up instead of ignoring it is to try and understand it better. And what I love about IFS is you're not trying to change these parts of yourself that you often detest or are afraid of. You're trying to understand them. And when you understand them, these parts have a story to tell. And when you let them tell their story and you can witness that, they're often unburdened by the role that they have been in that they never wanted to be in. I'll give you another example. So I occasionally have symptoms that lead me to believe that I experience depression. And I choose my words wisely because our words hold a lot of power. And I asked my therapist, do you think I'm depressed? Because if I were dealing with me, if I had me as a client, I would have some red flags, right? Like chronic pain, uh, sleep issues, sadness, loss of interest in the things that, you know, I previously enjoyed. Like, you know, these are very like textbook symptoms of depression. And her response was, I think you have a depressed part that developed from the trauma that you've experienced. And, you know, I've talked about this before, but I'll talk about it again. Things are not yes or no, 100 zero. Most often, things exist along a spectrum. So we see this with something like autism, which is why they call it autism spectrum. And 
autism can exist along this broad range where it can be, you know, mild to severe or uh, things like dementia now exist along a spectrum. You don't have it or you don't. It could, they don't, it could be mild cognitive impairment or it could be fully demented. It could be full dementia, right? So it, it, it exists along a, spe- a spectrum. And I never really thought about it. And we are certainly not taught this in school, in my education with depression. We are not taught that depression exists along a spectrum. You either have it or you don't. That's what we're, we're taught. You either have it or you don't, right? It doesn't exist along a spectrum, But if anyone has experienced depression, they know that some days are better than others. And maybe some days you're less depressed and some days you are more depressed. And maybe some days you're not depressed at all. And maybe some days you can't even get out of bed. And that really resonated with me. A, that it exists along a spectrum and B, that I have a depressed part. The other thing that she said or asked me was, how do you feel about a diagnosis of depression? Do you think it would help or hinder your health? And for me, it would definitely not be helpful because I am a person that is easily influenced and it's like I, I will see something, I'll watch something, and I will dream about it the next night. Like I internalize things very easily, which is why I'm going into organizational psychology, not therapy, because I, I would not be able to be a, a healthy therapist. I think I would take on people's things way too much. And so some people... Receiving a diagnosis is like, ah, yes, finally, now I know what's going on with me and I can move forward where other people, it actually hinders them. And we see this with things like dementia. When someone receives a diagnosis of dementia, you see their health deteriorate quite quickly rather than if someone receives a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment. And this is where we're going to get into the placebo effect. And so for me, I don't do well with diagnoses all the time. And what I found, even receiving this diagnosis of mast cell activation syndrome, I've had to kind of struggle with that. On one hand, I'm I'm happy that I know what's going on, but on the other I sometimes will attach on to that. I think I like strayed from a point anyways, from a part. Oh yeah, the depressed part. I'm going to I'm going to stay here and then we'll go to the placebo effect. So I asked her, "Do you think I'm depressed?" She says, "I think you have a depressed part." And what I found out was that this depressed part was an antidote for me overdoing it. So there are some times when I will feel so energized 
but it's almost manic. I don't know if any of you can relate where it's like, I can't contain the enthusiasm and the energy and it's not a good energized feeling. Like it's not a stable one. It's manic. And I know that soon I will come down hard. So it's like a really high high followed by a really low low. And in the past, you know, I have pushed myself and pushed myself and it's almost like that that depression formed as a way for me to stop pushing myself so hard whether I did it with exercise or with work or whatever just pushing myself so hard and when I asked this part what role it would like to take on instead of being depressed, it said rest. And so this, this original role of this part was the role of rest. But it had to burden itself and become depressed to stop me from pushing myself as a way to like balance out the scales. And when I finally found that out, I was really grateful for this part that comes out. It doesn't feel good to be depressed. I'm not grateful for that. But I understand the role that that depression is playing in that moment. doesn't mean that this is that for everyone. But this this is the outcome of IFS. And now when I'm experiencing those lo- those low moods, A, I ask myself, okay, am I pushing myself too hard? Like, is this part coming out because I actually need to just take some rest? Or is this um, symptoms of an emotional cold? You know, we get colds and we get the sniffles or body aches or headaches or whatever, and we kind of know a cold is coming on. Well, the same is true when we have an emotional cold we get these symptoms maybe we're not sleeping as well maybe we have uh, increased pain increased gut issues headaches rumination um, anxiety depression these are all symptoms that could be signs of an emotional cold that we need to listen to so that was the role of IFS and I still do that and I And it's so wonderful too, because as you get to interact with these parts, you build greater compassion. And really, you know, that's what, that's what all these parts need. They need to be witnessed and they need to be loved and they need to be shown compassion. And it has been one of the most transformative practices for me, really transformative So I encourage you, if you've ever experienced trauma, it's not just for people who have experienced trauma. It's also good to, for partners to get to know one another. There's things that just frustrate you about someone. Get to know those parts of them. Get them to understand those parts. Uh, It's truly transformative. I would encourage you, if this is resonating with you and you're like, wow, I have these parts of myself that... I don't know why they're there. I'm frustrated with them. I don't know how to to fix it. I don't know what to do. You know, these parts just keep coming out. 
um, you know, feelings, emotions, behaviors, I would encourage you to seek out a qualified therapist who is trained in internal family systems therapy. And it can be such a game changer for you or get some of uh, Richard Schwartz's books. One of them is called No Bad Part. That's a really interesting book. Um, Very transformational work. So now we're going to just shift gears a little bit. And it's still related, but we're going to talk about the placebo effect. And I bring this up because when I did the podcast with Heidi Turner talking about mast cell activation syndrome or MCAS, I made a comment and this comment has really stuck with me, not in a good way. (laughs) I made a comment saying, I don't think I'll ever be better on my podcast. And I realized like that is really incongruent with the message that I'm putting out. And yet in that moment, that is really how I felt. There was a part of me that felt I'm never going to get better, but also being okay with it. And then the other part of me is like, but you can get better. And you've seen yourself get better and you've seen other people get better. And there's only one thing that's stopping you from getting better. And that's your own belief system. And, you know, maybe that part of me that said, you're not going to get better. Maybe the goal is not to change that, but to understand that part. And maybe that part is there saying you're not going to get better because it's trying to, to soften the blow of times, time after time of not getting better, right? So maybe it's there to help me, to kind of like cushion me when things don't go well. So when we talk about the placebo, and that's more of a, a nocebo effect, it's really important to understand just how prevalent this is and how it relates to our healing journey. Because if we don't believe that we can get better, we're not going to get better. And I know you've probably heard a lot of people say that, and I've heard a lot of people say that too. And you kind of like, I don't know if you're like this, but I just brush it off to the side like, yeah, you got to believe or you're not going to get better. But when the rubber hits the road, you actually have to believe that you will get better. Moreover, you have to surround yourself with people that also believe you will get better. And some of the most influential people are the healthcare practitioners that you're working with. If you don't have a healthcare practitioner, a doctor, a naturopath, chiropractor, physical therapist, whoever is on your team, if you're not getting messages from them that you can get better, chances are you won't. And this has really been studied, actually, that they find when people's doctors or their practitioners believe in the treatment that they're giving, that the treatment is often more successful for the patient. 
So let's talk about the placebo effect. What is it? The placebo effect is a phenomenon in which a person experiences a perceived improvement in their symptoms or conditions after receiving a treatment that is known to be um, inert or inactive or, or a sham. So in other words, the patient's belief that they're receiving a treatment that will help them actually leads to an improvement in their condition. It is a well-known phenomenon in medicine and has been recognized for centuries, but it wasn't until the mid-20th century that it began to be studied systematically. So one of the key figures in the recognition of the placebo effect was a physician called Henry Beecher. In the 1950s, Beecher conducted a review of medical students where he found that a surprisingly high percentage of patients experienced improvements after receiving placebo treatments. And this led him to conclude that the placebo effect was a real and powerful phenomenon that could not be dismissed as mere suggestion or psychological manipulation. Researchers have found that the placebo effect can be influenced by a wide variety of factors, including the patient's expectations, the practitioner's expectations, the type of treatment being administered, and the context in which the treatment is given. So understanding the placebo effect is important for both practitioners and researchers as it can have a significant impact on the effectiveness of medical treatments and how they design their clinical trials. Conversely, to the placebo effect is the nocebo effect. And this is a phenomenon in which a patient experiences negative side effects, so not positive. They don't get better, they get worse, or worsening of symptoms after receiving a treatment that is known to be inert or inactive. So in other words, the patient's negative expectations and beliefs about the treatment actually lead to negative outcomes. The nocebo effect has been recognized for many years, but it wasn't until the 1960s and 70s that it began to be studied systematically. In one early study, researchers gave a group of patients a harmless sugar pill, but told them that it could cause nausea and other unpleasant side effects. Despite the fact that the pill was a sham, many of the patients reported experiencing the expected side effects. So when I think back to my statement about how I don't think I will ever get better, we can see the nocebo effect at play. Because with a mindset like that, I'm not going to get better. And if you don't believe that you're going to get better, then you're not going to get better. And this is the problem with attaching on to a diagnosis. Because once we receive a diagnosis, it's very hard to detach from that. Especially when it's like a mental health condition or, you know, actually whatever. And we can see that there have been all of these spontaneous remissions of different kinds of cancer or, you know, people do get better of all manner of things. And one of the key components is this belief that you can get better. 
placing that's really interesting that highlights this. So I also struggle with IBS. No surprise there, right? Like chronic conditions generally come with other chronic conditions because they all kind of have the same origin story. And I would get this like stomach rumbling sometimes after I had eaten and I had always associated that stomach rumbling and sounds that your stomach make with an IBS trigger. And every time I'd get it, I would experience writhing pain. I've been working with my doctor who's very, well, he's, you know, westernly trained. He's also, you know, very uh, cognizant of the impact of trauma and uh, the impact of mindset. And so he recommended that I do this program from an app called Nerva, which is gut-directed hypnotherapy. It's a six-week program. And if it doesn't help your symptoms, it doesn't help your symptoms. But for a lot of people, it does help their symptoms. And so I thought, all right, I'll give it a go, <laughs> right? I, I actually had so much success with the app called Curable for chronic pain uh, that I thought, you know what? I'm going to give this a try and see how it goes. And one of the lessons was about stomach rumbling and how this is a completely normal part of digestion. And you think I would know this having studied nutrition uh, and how people who don't have sounds in their stomach, it can actually be a sign that their digestive system isn't working properly and that it's a good sign. It's normal. This is a normal part of digestion. And the minute... I found out that information, something changed. The next time I ate and had stomach rumbling, I had no pain whatsoever. Nothing changed other than the information I received. So I had someone say, this is normal. It's actually good. Whereas before I'm like, what's going on? My digestive system isn't working properly. It's, I'm not breaking down the food. I'm going to get this trigger. And you just like go into a tailspin. And it changed in that moment. And I realized if something like that, and I have, I had been struggling with IBS for over a decade, over a decade, 10 years of stomach rumbling triggering pain in a moment gone just because someone said something if that's not the placebo effect in action I don't know what is and if it could work for that what else could it work for this isn't just the power of suggestion this is actually the belief this isn't suggestion but like a deep knowing that you're okay, that I'm okay, that I don't need to attach onto these labels or these diagnoses. And it doesn't mean, you know, you, you don't do your due diligence and seek out medical attention when you can, but you also have to adopt this belief that you can and you will get better because what do you have to lose? If you are someone who struggles with a chronic condition or a mental health condition, I mean, you're probably, you've already experienced the worst. What do you have to lose 
from believing you can get better unless you have a part that's like, don't believe that because you haven't gotten better and things have been bad and I'm going to protect you from that pain of a broken expectation by placing you in a position where you do not believe that you can get better because then you won't get hurt. And that's a whole different story. That's, that's different work that needs to be done. And so I thought, you know, I had these like different ideas for this podcast and I, I wanted to talk about IFS and how pinnacle that can be in transforming your health. But I also had to talk about the placebo effect and the role that belief plays. And we've seen this both anecdotally and scientifically. I mean, the placebo and nocebo effect have been studied extensively, extensively. So we understand this. So if we could only take these practices into our own lives, I wonder what kind of transformation we could really experience. And so, you know, I wanted to humbly come on my own show and say, I don't agree with what I said in that episode that I won't get better. That's not congruent, actually, with my true self and my true belief. I understand that that was a part that was coming out in that moment, and that's okay. But I actually believe that I can get better, and I have gotten better. I've gotten exponentially better And I hope you got something out of this episode because I really want to empower people to get better. And that starts with your own belief that you can get better. Because if you don't believe you can get better and you don't have practitioners and people around you who believe that you can get better, you're probably not. All right. That's it. That's all for today. Thank you so much for joining me. It's good to be back. I have some very exciting guests coming on in the near future. And I look forward to talking with you very soon. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. I hope you gained better insight into how you can be the healthiest version of yourself that you can be. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and please leave me a review as your reviews get this message of better health out there. You can also follow me on Instagram at Lena Jade's Healthy Life, where I post fitness, nutrition, and psychology content. All right, you guys, that is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode. And as you go throughout your day, always remember, you are powerful over your health.